disquiet on the Western Front. Oh wait. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. Authentic old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want more and more and more, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just, you know, right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, Were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. You must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. Listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. theme of our show today is Name Change Fort Bragg and the history of the Mendocino Indian Reservation overseen by the fort. I'm going to start this off with a short article from way back in June of 2020 from the Courthouse News Service, a news outlet primarily focusing on civil litigation and core audiences, lawyers, law firms, and other media outlets. The article is entitled Fort Bragg, California Considers Severing Its Ties to the Confederate General. The Fort Bragg City Council declined to put an initiative to change the city's name on the ballot in November and instead encouraged citizens to collect the necessary signatures to put a name change before voters. Fort Bragg is named after Braxton Bragg, a slaveholding Confederate general who historians agree was one of the worst tactical officers in the American Civil War. 
The city considered changing its name amid a national reckoning with a history of racial injustice and how the vestiges of that injustice continue to unfairly affect minority communities. But the city council said rushing to put the name change on the ballot in November, particularly as many in the community vehemently oppose such a change, would amount to a rush to judgment. Quote, we are not Fort Bragg because some guy who died 150 years ago named this town after Braxton Bragg, said Mayor Will Lee. We are Fort Bragg because of the families who live here. However, several speakers spoke in favor of changing the name to acknowledge and address the country's history of racial injustice. Most who spoke during the city council meeting on Monday favored keeping the name of the town despite its connection to the blundering Confederate general. Several noted that Bragg had never even stepped foot in the Northern California outpost situated on a picturesque slice of shore on the Pacific Ocean. Quote, I'm tired of looking at Bragg's face, but at the same time, that's not what Bragg means to me, said Scott Taleb. Still, many residents said the name tarnishes the reputation of the tourist-oriented town. Quote, they say there is a non-existent connection to the slave-holding general who betrayed his country, but that is but a threadbare excuse to avoid a genuine reckoning with our history, said Elias Henderson. Henderson and others in favor of putting the name change on the ballot further noted that the fort named in honor of Bragg also participated in displacing the Native Americans who had lived in the area for centuries. Several members of the Pomo tribe expressed support for changing the name to something that honored their traditions. Quote, I don't agree with the name, said Javier Silva, a member of the Sherwood Valley Band of Pomo. There was oppression here, but not because of Braxton Bragg. The town was named right after the Mexican-American War, which was fought about 12 years before the American Civil War. Horatio G. Gibson, who fought in the Mexican-American War, led an expedition into Northern California in 1857 and eventually named a garrison he founded after his former commanding officer, Braxton Bragg. Devion Johnson, the only black person to speak during the meeting as of late Monday evening, said he was not in favor of changing the name. Johnson said doing so would only divide the community and not address the problems of racism. Forcing the city to change its name isn't going to bridge the divide between us, he said. We should not engage in this battle that will pull us further apart. The city floated a potential compromise that involved rededicating the city after a different brag, including an officer in the Union Army that shared the last name. I think rededicating it would mean we wouldn't have to change the name, said David Gleason, another resident, excerpted from the Courthouse News Service article of June 22nd, 2020. Sometimes, folks, the truth is a drag. Our town's named for Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, Rebel General Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, everyone hated Braxton Bragg. He fought for the Confederate flag, lost every battle, Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, lousy strategist Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, everyone hated Braxton Bragg. He and his wife owned a hundred slaves, worked them into early graves. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, Black Lives Matter was not his bag. Don't know about you, but it makes me gag. Our town's named for Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, angry, arrogant Braxton Bragg. Braxton Bragg, Braxton Bragg, everyone hated Braxton Bragg. 
That was local musician, ethnomusicologist, and folkloricist Holly Tannen. We are going to be listening to some of Holly's music throughout this show. So I realized that pretty much everybody listening to this show would not be in favor of naving a town after a Confederate general. But the situation is quite complicated, and it's not such an easy solution as to say, we are going to change the name of this town. In order to get some proper background to understand the situation, let's go to Dr. Victoria Patterson, an ethno-historian who has worked with Mendocino County tribes to record their history from their perspectives for over 40 years. I've lived in Mendocino County since 1969. I've worked with Indians for about over 40 years to help tribes recover their own history and present it from their point of view. I've done some work with uh, Central Pomo language, and uh, I've been a teacher for mm, centuries. You're um, an anthropologist? Yes, I have uh, degrees from the University of Chicago and other places. I have a PhD. I've written a couple of books. I was the um, education columnist for News from Native California for over 10 years. So how did you originally come to become involved with Native American issues? I was hired. I worked for NCO and I was uh, asked to participate, to apply for a job as the director of a new bilingual program, which would involve native languages as well, but I was asked just to see if parents were on the hiring committee, which was a federal requirement. And mm -hmm. oddly enough, I got hired for the job. So there was no, at that time in 1971, there were no curriculum materials really about California Indians appropriate for elementary school. And so I needed to work with parents of children in the program to understand what they would like their children and others to know. And so that became my, be, began my association with Native people. You know, this interview wasn't going to be about language, but I have a side question about that because I worked in public health for many years. And I remember I was in Massachusetts and I was working with a number of old people and there were two people. I don't remember the language they spoke, but they were the last two people who spoke the language that of their tribe. Do you know how many people still speak Northern Pomo? Probably two. <laughs> no, I'm being a little facetious. I mean, fluently, there are very few speakers. But mm -hmm. there is a Northern Pomo language program going on at Ukiah High. Oh, so they're wow. trying to teach children how to speak Northern Pomo. So there's a lot of language recovery programs going on now in California. Yeah. For example, Round Valley had a Wailaki program. And they have kids from Round Valley speaking Wailaki now. That is so powerful. This interview is about name changing and the long and complicated movement to change names of places and to honor the present and to stop dishonoring the past by things like the name of Fort Bragg, Braxton Bragg for the town of Fort Bragg. Just from the big picture, what is your perspective both nationally and locally of the name change movement? Well, I think it depends on the name and the circumstances and the Native people's perspective on what is appropriate. So, for example, I worked with Hopland Tribe to change the name of Squaw Rock, which is a rock along Highway 101. Very well known. Lots of uh, 
romantic stories attached to it, having to do with Indian maidens jumping off the rocks and so on and so forth. Squaw is considered to be a very derogatory term by many Native people across the nation, and many other squaw names have been changed. I happen to be working with some people from Hoplin, elders, who told me that the name of that rock in central Pomo is Kawo Mata Kawe, which means frog woman rock. Okay. And it's associated with frog woman, who is the consort of coyote. And um, we were able to change that name from squaw rock to frog woman rock. So in that case, it was a derogatory native word that was used by English speakers in a derogatory manner and so on. So that name was changed. Yeah. However, when it comes to digging up native names for places that are, that are not known by that name by the native people, it's a different story. And Fort Bragg, this is my own personal opinion, you know, changing the name is like changing the name of Auschwitz to uh, Bubbling Brook or something or Forest, Forest Blade. You know, it reminds us of what happened. Fort Bragg is not just because of Braxton Bragg, but it was a fort that was placed on the Mendocino Reservation, so-called to protect the Indians, but became so horrible that it became known as the U.S. brothel. It's, you know, if you just change the name, then you erase that part of the history that people should know about. People don't know about the reality of Fort Bragg on the Mendocino Reservation. And if you change the name, then you don't have a link to that piece that has to be acknowledged of what occurred to Native people. So, you know, what Indians would like, from what I understand, is they'd like the land back instead of a name change. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, if you really want to right the injustices of the past, that's the thing to do. Participate with Coyote Valley in getting a co-management plan for Jackson State Demonstration Forest, for example. Yeah. You know, they've well, completely talk- desecrated all the a- ar- archaeological sites in that forest. Yeah. It's too important that a name change, you're calling it some Pomo name that you dig up from something, you know. Yeah. I was talking to uh, two teachers at the Fort Bragg High School, and... Both of them were like, well, you know, we talked to this, uh, your average high schooler and they, they could care less. Some of them are very attached to the name Fort Bragg, but, you know, their feeling is, is that what's the point of a name change without a curriculum in the high school let people know what this name is about? Exactly. And if you erase the name, then who's going to find out? Yeah. You know, what's important is, as what you're saying, is to have people understand what the reservation system was, what Mendocino Reservation was, what occurred. I have some quotes here that I think would be interesting. Here is a quote from the Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Northern District of California. He reported this in 1861. This is a quote. This location, Mendocino Reservation, was wisely chosen at the time, but permission was given to certain parties by the superintendent to erect a sawmill at the mouth of the Noyo River near the southern boundary. The result has proved deeply injurious to the Indians in two ways. In the first place, it has destroyed their valuable fishery at the mouth of the Noyo, and in the second place, it brought in a large number of white men whose influence is anything but improving to the morals of the Indians. So, you know, that's what needs to be recognized. Mendocino Reservation went all the way from the Noyo River up to Tenmoyan. It was actually a federal boondoggle 
It opened in 1856. It extended 11 miles along the coast from the Noyo River north to Ten Mile River and eastward from the ocean to the valleys beyond the first range of hills. It included around 25,000 acres, of which 4,000 were thought suitable for agriculture. They forced people from the Ukiah Valley, from Point Arena, Anderson Valley, Hopland, Mendocino, Sherwood, Cloverdale, and Usall, dragged them from their homes. At the time, they called it rounding them up and forced them onto the reservation. The Indians did not stay on that reservation for very long because unlike the glorified reports sent by the superintendents to the federal government about how ideal this spot, spot was, uh, it was cold and windy and very little food other than seaweed or shellfish. There was no housing for Indians on the reservation other than what they could put together themselves. Supposed to teach them how to farm and to prepare them with food, tools, and education. But in reality, only potatoes and some grain could be grown in the foggy coast climate. And the reservation never produced enough food to feed all the Indians gathered there. So in order to survive, they allowed the people to leave the reservation to hunt and gather acorns and other foods. And of course, many times the people never returned. You know, they went back to their original <laughs> homes, which were then, yeah. you know, taken over by, by newcomers. Yeah. A few hundred Indians whose regular villages were near the reservation stayed around the ranches of the reservation agents. Some had families together or gave themselves the names of the, ed the agents under whose protection they lived. So many local Indian family names come from this reservation time. Campbell, Whipple, Sherwood, Bite, Bell. And in the 1860 census of Mendocino County, they have listed as Indians, in quotation marks, employed on Mendocino Reservation, Boyas, Boca, Yoboku, Concow, Hot Pat Creek, Kimak, Maka, Wapo, Camopoma, Usol, Yucas, and Humboldt. And who knows where they, those names come from. Anyway, it was chosen as a reservation site because of its relative isolation from white settlement. According to Superintendent Henley, only two small villages were located within the proposed reservation boundaries. And he reported that the settlers there would be, quote, willing to accept a reasonable compensation for their improvements. The expose of quitting all claims would probably be about $500 to $1,000. Future settlement of the area also seemed unlikely to Henley, who emphasized this by saying, quote, is most certainly better protected from the possibility of encroachment by settlers than any point I am acquainted with in the state. Yet, the town of Mendocino, with the largest non-Indian population in Mendocino County and its settlers, who had threatened an Indian war if the local Indians were not removed, were barely 10 miles away. In fact, the citizens of Mendocino signed a petition demanding that the governments take strong action against local Indians and protect the town from Indian raids if they valued peace in the area. So in the summer of 1857, a military post was established on Mendocino Reservation to aid oh, yeah. in maintaining order among the Indians. First Lieutenant Horatio Gibson of the 3rd Artillery with a detachment of 20 men commanded the post. Gibson built his headquarters on the north side of the Noyo. He named the post after a former company commander, General Braxton Bragg. 
the company borrowed necessary tools from Captain Ford of the reservation. And by the fall of 1857, they had constructed officers' quarters in three buildings. The post eventually had 16 buildings, although the number of men stationed there was never large. That's for Bragg. Yep. Yeah. The local people, the vloggers, did not like the military because they thought they were spying on them and they would stop them from their practices of renting out Indian women as pack animals. Uh. Uh, he says... Um, as far as protecting the settlers from Indian outrages, the United States troops have never been of service in this section of the country. I think probably that 10 or 15 frontier men would succeed better at quieting Indian difficulties than a company of regular troops because they would feel more interested in the result and from their better knowledge of Indian habits and the harmony in which they live. And of course, this was followed by Round Valley, the Mendocino Wars, where these frontiersmen, you know, set up a a group of uh, of mercenaries who uh, established preemptive raids on Indians for killing cattle. I mean, they would they would accuse them of killing a cow. Then after they killed Indians, they'd find the cow. It was a horrible situation. It was investigated by the state of California, and there are a whole set of hearings, testimony from the Mendocino Wars that are available at the Mendocino County Library, if anybody wants to read them. So what happened is Headley and his henchmen, you know, found this piece of property. Let's put the Indians there. They could collect money from the government, you know, to provide food, but they pocketed the money. And uh, it was a terrible, terrible mess. The uh, end of the reservation came in um, 1861. Uh, they began to recommend its ab abandonment barely five years after its official authorization. And they were going to move those Indians to Round Valley. As early as 1858, Goddard Bailey, who was special agent for the United States Interior Department, says, Notwithstanding its natural advantages, the reservation has not thriven. There are but few Indians upon it, 722, and the great majority of these could in no wise be distinguished from their wild brethren. The whole place has an effete, decayed look that is most disheartening. I saw it, it is true, at an unfavorable season of the year, but there were unmistakable indications everywhere that whether considered as a means of civilization or as purely eleemosynary, the system as tried here is a failure. So that's the sad history of the Mendocino Reservation. Mm -hmm. You know, changing the name, the name of Fort Bragg, and you never go back to find out what really happened. You have erased the terrible period that should be acknowledged and understood to understand where Native people are feeling today, what they're feeling today, in terms of intergenerational trauma and so on. Yes. That's my feeling. That's my personal point of view. Well, thank you, Dr. Victoria Patterson. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front. That was Dr. Victoria Patterson, anthropologist, ethnologist, author, and educator with over 40 years working with the tribes of Northern California. I have to apologize for the sound quality on tonight's show. I've been working hard for the last two years to get things better, but the power went out the night of my two scheduled interviews, and so they were both done via Zoom 
via microwaves flying through the air to me in my car from the appropriately named Pomo Bluffs Park in Fort Bragg, California. Let's listen to another song by Holly Tannen. This is the Redwood Blues from her new CD, Eat Your Triceratops. Woke up this morning, pain in my head. Wished I could crawl right back in bed. Pain in my back, pain in my knees, but I'm still gonna go protect them trees. Got the redwood blues. Oh, it's so bad. Honey, come and hug me. They're the worst I ever had. I want to take a walk, I want to take a hike, I want to ride through the woods on my electric bike, but I'm going to... When I first moved to Mendocino County in 1986, I took classes at College of the Redwoods, and there I encountered Bob Wynn. In the 70s, he'd been an English teacher at Fort Bragg High School, and then moved up to the community college level. He was of a quality of professor that you didn't usually find, somebody who was accepting lower pay to live here because they loved living here. It was through Bob Wynn's work in the previous years that I heard originally how horrible things had been in Mendocino County and on the Mendocino Indian Reservation. In 1986, Bob Wynn put out a monograph for the Mendocino Historical Society entitled The Mendocino Indian Reservation. Bob found out in his research that the whole point of the reservation was a land and money grab. The people who managed it used the money that came in to build reservation infrastructure to build their own outbuildings, to build their own sawmills, to enrich themselves, and committed slaughter upon the people they were supposed to be, quote, protecting and civilizing. The Mendocino Historical Society monograph is still available from the Kelly House Museum or the Mendocino Historical Society. Bob, in his later years, wrote a historical fiction novel, The Death of Captain Ford, A Tale of California. This was based on the history that he had written about in his monograph. All the characters and all the events were real, except for the narrator, who was a created character, and through whose eyes we can see the history and feel the horror. The Death of Captain Ford was published posthumously by his wife, Sue Wynn. The book is available at the Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino. Here is my co-host from my other show, Pride Nation 101, Roland Corey Medina, reading two passages. I would like to give a warning. The next four minutes are full of images of pretty graphic suffering and hate. But this is the essence of the history that needs to be told in order to have an understanding of the depth of the emotions and pain that so many Native Americans, so many other peoples have suffered and continue to suffer up to now. And hopefully the bringing of these atrocities to the light of day will prevent their happening again in the future. It was a report on the state of the Mendocino Reservation, presumably one of the literate reports that had forced Henley out of his position as superintendent. Dated April 19th, 1858, and written by J. Ross Brown, special agent for the Treasury Department, it was a harsh indictment of Henley's administration. Through interviews with employees and analysis of financial records, Brown demonstrated that government resources had been used to build the sawmill and support its operation, 
and that the Indians had suffered greatly as a consequence. Supplies had been diverted from the Indians to the mill employees. The reservation carpenter, while still on the government payroll, had spent several months directing the logging operations for the mill, using a crew of the best Indians to do the dangerous work of felling the timber and getting the logs to the mill, work for which the Indians were never paid the 50 cents a day they were promised. The reservation's teams of draft horses were used to drag logs out of the woods instead of plowing the fields for the crops that were supposed to feed the Indians. The results of this diversion of resources had been devastating. The effect of this transfer of provisions from the legitimate purposes of the reservation has evidently been most disastrous to the Indians. During the winter, many of them left to avoid actual starvation. Only the work hands were fed and they received rations for themselves and not for their families. I state this on the authority of reservation employees Hinckley, Smith, White, and Simpson, whom I carefully examined at separate times, and whose testimony concurred in every particular. They represent that great suffering was experienced by the families of Indians left there during the inclement weather, when they were unable to go out and gather shellfish on the rocks. Robert White says that many of them actually died of starvation, and that it made his heart bleed to hear them beg for food, without the power to relieve them. Had the force of able-bodied men employed upon the mill been detailed to aid the aged decrepit in procuring food, the probability is it would have suffered less. So far as these statements are concerned, my own observation at the date of my visit tends to confirm them. The condition of the Indians was deplorable in the extreme. I went into several of their huts and saw incontestable evidence of distress and suffering. Many of them were sick, and those who were not sick seemed to have given themselves up to despair. In all of my experience of Indian reservations, I have seen nothing so bad as this. No suffering so palpable and so calculated to arouse sympathies. Further evidence of the Indians' distress was that the majority of those brought to the reservation had left. The investigator noted that nine months earlier, according to a report by Agent Ford, 2,000 Indians were on the reservation. Ford had written at that time that the Indians begin to understand and feel that it is better to be here, where they are well cared for and protected, rather than exposed to the insults and oppression that are at all times liable to be heaped upon them by unprincipled whites when beyond the immediate vicinity of some Indian agency. But between the time of Ford's report in the summer of 1857 and the investigation in the spring of 1858, the great majority of the Indians had vanished. The employees say that there are not more than 250 on the reservation. If they were well contented and properly cared for, what has made them return to their homes in Yukia, Russian River, and Bodega Valleys in defiance of the protests of the white settlers who have threatened to kill them if they come back? The investigator concluded his report by noting other ways the sawmill had hurt the reservation. The logging had destroyed the Indian salmon fishery, and the white mill workers had corrupted and degraded the Indian women. Where whiskey and white men go, he wrote, there will be neither peace nor happiness for the Indians. I read the testimony in the depositions you gave me. It was a revelation that men could treat their fellow humans as animals without the slightest remorse is something I had not before thought possible. When asked why he had killed children, one of the raiders responded, Nits will be lice. And in the same room where he gave that testimony, in the dining hall of Storm's Hotel, I saw a group of men arrive after a successful raid, or perhaps I should say a hunt. They had killed eight bucks, as they called them, and left the bodies for the wolves and coyotes and vultures. They breathlessly narrated their exploits to their fellow diners, exulting in their human kill. Dylan nodded and refilled her glasses. Nits will be lice, he said musingly. I've heard it so many times that it no longer shocks me. It is a favorite phrase of those men, 
a kind of incantation that shields them from the horror of putting a bullet into an innocent child. I know those killers. I lived among them for a year and a half. I told you Round Valley was a terrible place. We drank in silence for a while, contemplating our separate experiences of that strange and haunting place. A natural paradise gone terribly wrong. It was the very image of a pastoral Eden, with its rich pastures, meandering streams, and majestic oaks. For the first time, I tried to imagine it as it had been for the Indians before the settlers had arrived, less than a decade ago. How peaceful it must have been for them. That was Roland Corey Medina reading Robert Wynn's The Death of Captain Ford. I would like to stress that accounts of the Native Americans coming from settler peoples in the 1800s must be taken with a grain of salt. Native Americans in what we now know as Northwest California lived quite well. They had sophisticated lives, sophisticated languages, and worked hand in hand with the natural world to have an incredible diet. Before 1850, the population density of this area was very high, demonstrating the success of their thousands-of-year-old system. Now, let's go to my interview with Phil Zwirling of ChangeOurNameFortBragg.com. I'm Phil Zwirling. Uh, I most recently was teaching at the University of Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, and my wife and I relocated to Fort Bragg in uh, 2017. Uh, to enjoy our retirement. We're both writers. My wife has been writing and publishing poetry, and I've been writing uh, mostly uh, nonfiction. See, one book has come out since I got here, and another one should be out uh, in a year or so. The last one uh, is called Lock, uh, written in collaboration with one of my former colleagues in Texas, uh, and it's about uh, his African-American family and their experiences through past generations uh, with slavery. So how did you get involved in the Change the Name Fort Bragg movement? You know, I, I, I got hooked into this because I came up here uh, as a complete naif. I didn't know. I had never heard the name of Braxton Bragg. Uh, when I first got here, I looked around for a fort and couldn't find one. So it, it was a little bit mysterious, but I didn't give it much thought. In fact, I, I believe that that this Braxton Bragg must have been a good guy to have two forts named after him, both uh, here in uh, California and the other in North Carolina. But people who were interested in, in changing the name uh, kind of drew me in and I did more research and I was horrified to find out that we were uh, kind of uh, doubly uh, cursed being named for a fort, which happily no longer existed, but which was established to dispossess the original indigenous inhabitants, and the name Bragg, a, uh, a general in the Confederate Army. And I was a little more sensitive to this, perhaps because I had, uh, once upon a time, having been born and raised in New York State, uh, I had gone to school and to live in New Orleans. And it was a shock to my system to be surrounded by so many memorials to the confederacy which we never saw in new york but there there was robert e lee circle it was a roundabout downtown a giant obelisk topped by a statue of robert e lee the confederate traitor and uh, enslaver and then in one of uh, one of the areas in new orleans was the confederate history museum uh established in the home where the former president of the Confederacy, uh, Jefferson Davis, had died. 
So, you know, uh, it's been said that in the South, um, the past is not dead. It's not even past. And, and, and that became very real to me uh, living, living in uh, New Orleans, where for the first time in my life, I saw white racism expressed openly uh, in words that I would never have heard in New York and certainly never uh, have not yet encountered in California, Knockwood. So uh, my consciousness was raised. And when I got here, I did a little more research. And uh, since then, I've been working with people to try to change the name of our city. How is the campaign going? <laughs> well, you know, considering that the campaign actually started in 1863, I would say slow but steady. Uh, and I, it began in 1863 when a colonel at the fort in Humboldt, uh, wrote to the War Department saying, you know, there's this fort uh, several miles to the south of me, and it's named for Braxton Bragg, and he's a general on the other side. We've got to change the name of that fort. Uh, but being in the midst of the Civil War, uh, the War Department uh, didn't pay much attention. Nothing happened. Shortly after the war, the uh, the fort went out of, uh, went out of business. So, uh, considering we, it's been a 160-year struggle so far, I'd say we're, we're doing pretty well. And uh, I've actually thought of um, offering this public wager that uh, of $1,000, and I would bet that the name of the city will be changed within the next 10 years. So I think it's going pretty well. What are the challenges you're facing? <laughs> well, I think I th- uh, um, ignorance, tradition, and racism, I would say, are the three major uh, major obstacles. Uh, and, and I understand uh, at least one of them, and that is, uh, well, certainly I understand ignorance. People don't, uh, by and large, people who live here don't know who Braxton Bragg was. And uh, when I get in discussions with people, they tell me, oh, he never owned slaves. But yes, he did. Oh, he didn't own slaves until uh, after the fort was named for him. No, he was born into a slave-owning family. He had a slave who attended attended his every need while he was a student at West Point. He had a slave who accompanied him against the slave's uh, very will in the invasion of Mexico in the Mexican-American War. So people don't know the history. And I think as they become uh, more uh, knowledgeable about it, uh, they share our concern. The other part of it is, uh, and, and racism, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to do anything about that with those people who are racist but do not recognize it. But the, the issue of tradition, I really do empathize with. Uh, people will say, and it's, it's kind of, it, it is sad. They say, you know, I really, I miss my town was a lumbering fishing town. And the fishing is gone. The lumbering is gone. Uh, all I've got left. And, and I have to say that previous Mayor Lindy Peters explained this to me with great emotion. Uh, this is all that these folks have left. And, and, um, I think that's an emotional attachment uh, that perhaps people can be weaned from. As I said to Lindy, you know, would you be, if you woke up tomorrow and this city had a different name, would you be less of a man in some way? Uh, uh, A question that enraged him, I have to say. So those are the obstacles, but I think think with slow and steady persistence, we can overcome them. Uh, The group changed our name. We now have our own website, which I would like to share with people, which is www.changeournamefortbragg.com, is now up and running. We have our own own email site. We are becoming a 501c3 organization. We are already incorporated under the state of California. Uh, So we, we have established ourselves in ways that are going to reach out as educational 
to raise the consciousness in the city. And we've attracted about 300 supporters to this movement. So I, I think it is a matter of time. The demographics of Fort Bragg are changing. Um, and, and one consequence will be uh, new people coming to our area, the changing of the guard here. But these will be people with more money who do not share the traditions. They weren't born here. They didn't grow up here. They didn't go through the schools here. They're not graduates of Fort Bragg High School. Uh, and, and the city is going to change in ways uh, both good and ill. But one good way it's going to change is that uh, the name will change. Uh, I just want to point out, having mentioned Fort Bragg High, that at this point, there are only two public schools in the entire state of California named for a Confederate. Uh, five years ago, we had four schools, but Robert E. Lee Elementary down in Long Beach changed its name, and Robert E. Lee Elementary in San Diego changed its name. And that leaves Fort Bragg Middle School and Fort Bragg High School as the last two public schools in the state of California to be named for a Confederate. So... Uh, the organization is growing. I'm certainly happy to talk to you on the radio. Uh, I want to, um, you know, really direct people to our website, which has a lot of educational materials and uh, the opportunity to join us in this effort. Um, and I'll, I'll share a piece of news with you. And that is that we're launching as an educational institution uh, organization, we're launching an essay contest for high, uh, Fort Bragg High School students. Uh, with a very nice uh, set of prizes, $1,000 for first place, uh, $500 second place, $200 third place, to uh, ask students to write on the subject. And they have a choice of two subjects. Should Fort Bragg High School should change its name or Fort Bragg High School should not change its name. And we're asking for a well-written and most importantly, well-researched papers. And we'll be launching that campaign in about two weeks, and there'll be a lot more information on it. But my point is that the campaign, the entire campaign that changed the name really rests on education and combating uh, general ignorance about the history of the town, the history of the state of California, uh, and how the name impacts people, African Americans, Latinos, indigenous people, and makes us, uh, sadly, an unwelcoming uh, community. Let me play devil's advocate, because I, I do feel that quite a few of the, the people who are against name changing are against it for the wrong reasons, or at least in my opinion, the wrong reasons. But there is definitely, I, I've spoken to a number of people who are like, well, if we change the name to something like Seaside, then that's not necessarily what we're going to change it to. But that then this history is forgotten. And one person I have spoken to recently is a high school teacher who says, well, what seems more important is, is that we educate people about what the history was. Because like you said, it's a question of ignorance and it's not in our textbooks and it's not being covered. And most people have no idea what was here 160 years ago. Oh, how do you answer this? Well, I think there are, there are quite a number of responses. First of all, we have to recognize that we're in a particular moment of racial reckoning in this country following the murder of George Floyd. And people can go online. And, uh, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center maintains an interactive map online showing the dispersal of Confederate monuments and names all across the country. And you can click on the map. And it'll show you whether or not the name has been changed or not. 
uh, literally thousands of uh, racist and Confederate names across the country. And many hundreds, literally hundreds upon hundreds, have been changed. And every one of those changes involved an educational campaign. In other words, um, if, if I could snap my fingers and tomorrow the name of Fort Bragg would be Seaside, as you mentioned, uh, which, which unfortunately is already a name taken by another city in California. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, uh, because I think the process is so important because the education is so important. Uh, but the education, the process has to end in the changing of the name. Uh, right now we have 10 uh, military bases, uh, army bases below the Mason-Dixon line, uh, all of which are named for Confederates and all of which will change their names next year. So this, this is, this is, we're going to be the last Fort Bragg in the country. So the, um, the process is educational, keeping the name. I guess, you know, education has to eventually result in action. Otherwise, education means nothing. Oh, I'm, I'm educated, but I'm not changing my ways. Uh, so it would be hard to defend the idea that yes, we'll go through an educational process, but then we'll keep the name. Why? How does that, how does that fit? And of course, the, we've already had a system here where people have uh, had the opportunity to go through an educational process around the name and haven't done so. Uh, if you talk to uh, high school students, they don't know anything about Braxton Bragg. If you talk to adults in town, uh, they have all kinds of misinformation about who he was. So it's really the, the goal of the name change that, uh, that brings us, that, uh, that moves this educational process forward. And I would think that once the name is changed, there ought to be, there ought to be, I don't know, an asterisk, uh, the, the town formerly known as uh, Fort Bragg. There ought to be displays and educational materials at the old fort buildings downtown. The plaque on the rock in front of the Guest House Museum ought to be rewritten uh, with both the new name and an explanation for the old name. Uh, we're not trying to, no one's trying to obliterate history. My goodness, we're the ones who are we're actually trying to understand and talk about history. So I would not uh, I would not like to see the name disappear unless people are reminded of, of this history. And of course, the larger history, which I did not know, and most people don't know, is the rather ambivalent role of the state of California in the Civil War. There's a reason that this city is still Fort Bragg. There's a reason that we have Jeff Davis Peak in the Sierras. There's a reason that we have the Alabama Hills on the eastern slope of the Sierras. And that's because California had a large population of Southerners and secessionists. We attracted slaveholders to California during the gold rush. Uh, people came from the South with their slaves to work the gold fields. Uh, slavery was not outlawed in the state of California until after the Civil War. So uh, we have to come to grips with this rather ambivalent history. We think of um, California as having been part of the Union, which it was, of having fought on the Union side, which it did. But there was a great difference of political opinion here, and it's been memorialized in the names of um, natural uh, natural you know, places like mountains and valleys and uh, municipalities as well. Well, I am on your mailing list. And I remember a couple of months ago, you sent out a list of suggested names. And 
it made me think that this is an especially difficult time in history to rename a place. And Fort Bragg politically is a somewhat divided community that, that they seemed like you were working hard to find names that wouldn't um, push anybody's buttons. Well, I, I think uh, there is. People will, uh, if they go to the website, www.changeournamefortbragg.com, uh, we have a page dedicated to alternate names, uh, which we've solicited uh, from uh, the population, none of which I, I endorse in any way, nor do we suggest a single new name. The idea was simply to see how many, and, and we've already generated, I don't know, 60 or more possible names for this community, uh, none of which uh, involve uh, the Confederates or a fort. And uh, I think if people look at those names, they'll find some of them are quite attractive. Um, and again, uh, none of them really undermine uh, civic pride or community spirit. I, I think we could be a much more united community if we did have a new name. I think it would help. We probably want to, you know, bring in some experts in branding and some uh, some experts in tourism uh, to find a name that would be would be attractive. But I think this has to be a two step process. One, we have to decide as a community to change the name. And having made that decision, then we have to move on to the second uh, decision, which is what the name will be. Uh, but I think it would be a mistake to um, to think that uh, we have to find a name now. I think that would just becomes uh, just becomes uh, adding a, a, another division onto the the a division of finding a name. I think there are many many names out there. It's surprising how many of them, and we've tried to weed out the ones that have already been used. Uh, by other cities and towns in uh, in California, but we still have 60, and we're still soliciting more more suggestions. People have been very creative about it. A few months back, in my own ignorance, I thought, well, Noyo seems like the best possible name, and I was at a gathering with a number of Pomo people, and I mentioned it to one of them, and they said, well, that's to me, that's not an acceptable solution because it's kind of like, the land was stolen from us and you're going to rebrand it uh, with one of our names with a word from our language and not give any land back. Yeah. So it's, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is it, it really is a, a difficult, difficult process, but as you say, that's, that's the second step. The first step is getting there. Right. And, and we've also heard that um, Pomo do not want their language used to name land that was stolen from them. And I think people can understand that. I, I lived in the East in communities that were built after uh, World War II. And we uh, and, and there was the phenomenon. Uh, first, the developers move in, they cut down all the elm trees, and then they name the street Elm Street. So you know, and the, the same thing would be, well, first we kill and displace the indigenous and then we take their names. The issue um, also is that, 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 as it's been explained to me by indigenous people, is that their words have spiritual meaning beyond the word itself. And so they don't want it applied. And then there's also the issue of pronunciation, uh, where, you know, we, we try to uh, put their language in anglicized letters, but it doesn't always work, and their pronunciation can be very different from ours. So while uh, Noyo has been probably the most popular suggestion uh, for renaming the city, it's not, it's not one that's probably going to work. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Uh, just that this is an effort, uh, you know, I, I want to... Uh, 
I want to, I want to make the point that this is the kind of community movement in which, which could be cohesive rather than divisive, uh, that, uh, we're not, we don't want to divide the community. We really want to unite the community. And the name change process can be a process of bringing people together. And a new name uh, can be something that everybody who lives here can be proud of. Uh, so I just, I just have a very hopeful feeling both about, about the process and the, and the final conclusion. And I would just, again, uh, invite your listeners to, uh, to go to our website, www.changeournamefortbragg.com. And, uh, and join this effort. We'd be very happy to have you with us. Thank you, Chad. You're welcome. Take care, Phil. All right, you too. That was Philip Swirling, Director of Change Our Name Fort Bragg. I encourage you to go to their website, changeournamefortbragg.com. After listening to Phil's interview, I was thinking back to a book I read years ago, City of Courts by Mike Davis, a sort of people's history of Los Angeles. There he states that Los Angeles County in the 1950s was a national hotspot of Klan activity with intimidation, violence, and legal segregation. California's racist history runs deep. Kevin Waite, in a 2019 article in The New Republic writes, California's pro-slavery roots run much deeper than one might suspect. When gold was first discovered near Sacramento in 1848, southern-born Argonauts, some of them with slaves in tow, were among the thousands to join the rush. Slaveholders and their allies also occupied a disproportionate share of the state's high offices through the 1850s. Thanks to their efforts, antebellum California, more often than not, followed the lead of the slave south on the major political issues of the day. California was, quote, as intensely Southern as Mississippi or any of the other fire-eating states. After the war, California refused to ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments, the measures that extended citizenship rights to all natural-born Americans and granted suffrage to black men. California was the only free state to reject both amendments during the Reconstruction era. In a belated token gesture, the state ratified them in 1959 and 1962, respectively. One group that has been crucial in the uncovering of much of this history is the Southern Poverty Law Center, who also tracks hate and tracks hate incidents and tracks the removal of Confederate memorials. From the third edition of their report, Whose Heritage, I would like to read, quote, Examining Confederate memorials from a historical and contemporary lens has important lessons to teach us about democracy. Their very existence reminds us how easily white supremacy can erode our democracy and can subvert this country's promise to provide liberty and justice for all. A nation that truly believed in the equality of all people and that was committed to realizing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments would never have allowed these shrines to white supremacy to be built. Democracy only works when people are actively engaged and the process of removing a Confederate monument galvanizes people to do so. That these Confederate monuments are associated with lynching is no accident. And it's not just monuments that convey white supremacy. Schools were named after Confederates to signal opposition to federal integration mandates. Roadways named after Confederates reinforced residential segregation. Confederate battle flags were raised over state houses in South Carolina and Alabama. Moreover, Georgia and Mississippi incorporated elements of the Confederate flag in their state flags. These are clear government endorsements of the values of the Confederacy. 
In short, Confederate memorials offer a cautionary tale about the failures of democracy, its fragility, and how our laws and landscapes have actively thwarted the promise of equal protection. In making this show, I reached out to a number of members of the Sherwood Band of Pomo Indians. None wanted to comment publicly. The general sentiment was, people are just too exhausted of trying to let people know that changing the name is much less important than actually returning the land, that their whole way of life has been destroyed. Since 1860, the salmon are gone. Most of the giant redwoods are gone. The abalone are gone. People's bones lie beneath the glass that's picked up at Glass Beach by tourists. This is not an acceptable situation. And of course, Fort Bragg and the Mendocino Indian Reservation were not an acceptable situation. I don't know what the next step towards healing is, but I do know that it cannot be taken without the descendants of settler people like me having full awareness of how horribly atrocious, how inexcusably violent the settlement was. I am Chad Swimmer living on the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California. My most recent involvement in trying to right the wrongs committed by my ancestors began with the movement to change the management of Jackson State Forest, which has now become a Pomo land back movement. I would like to thank Dr. Victoria Patterson for sharing her knowledge, Dr. Philip Swirling for sharing his time, Roland Corey Medina, of course, and posthumously, my old friend and mentor, Robert Wynn. Thank you for spending this hour with me on Disquiet on the Western Front. Of course, the views and opinions expressed are those only of myself and my guests, and not those of the staff or management of any station that airs this show. I'd like to offer a big thanks to Holly Tannen for sharing her music. We are going to go out with one more of her songs, The Rhyme of the Ancient Matriarch. I was born in Turkey 30,000 years ago. I taught the women and the men the things that they should know. The patriarchs invaded and I was forced to roam. I am an Indian patriarch a long way from my home. So I escaped to Brittany way up to northern France. I met some girls with hairy paws who thought they wore the pants Until I had them brought to me inside my pleasure dome I am an ancient matriarch a long way from my home Across the channel I was called to help the Celts carouse Where fungi flourished on the plops and droppings of the cows In jest I said in jest these things and thus the hens were stoned. I am an ancient matriarch a long way from my home. Tis then across the ice. I boldly made my way where I was worshipped as a queen. 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.